Warning. We live under tepid neoliberal faux progressivism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine rights of kings. It is election time in Canada. The election season is upon us, everyone. It's very exciting. For our American listeners, I understand that you're presidential election you have a really really long period where you talk and think about it like multiple years Canada doesn't work that way the average Canadian thinks about the Canadian federal election for about five weeks I'm serious like when the writ drops like that's when people start paying attention that's the beginning of the election period we also don't vote for our prime ministers we vote for local representatives and whichever party has the most representatives in the end has a chance to form government if they have a majority they have a minority that is less than half the seats then they need to form a coalition there's three major parties basically we have the liberal party the leader being justin trudeau we did an episode on him recently liberals often use leftist rhetoric and elections for example even though they maintained a tax loophole that costs 750 million dollars a year and handouts to 8000 extremely rich canadians like multimillionaires trudeau promised to close that loophole decided against closing it but at the same time his election ads I just saw one that he, where he talks about raising taxes on the 1%. So it's a great example of campaigning on the left, governing on the right, which is part of the Liberal Party thing. We also have the Conservative Party, the leader, Andrew Scheer. Sean likes to call him a... A crypto-fascist cabbage patch crypto-fascist doll. Crypto-fascist cabbage He's patch doll. He's a racist doll who's come to life. <laughs> and then we have the NDP, the New Democratic Party, the Social Democrats. If Bernie Sanders had his own political party that had a history of disappointing people, it would be the NDP, and it is being led by Jagmeet Singh. The party this election season has one of the best platforms they've had in a long time. It has a Green New Deal for all Canadians, ending homelessness in 10 years with massive investments in social and truly affordable housing, and expanding universal health care to cover mental health, dental coverage, and pharmacare. Many people know that Canadians have universal health care, but you may not know if you live outside the country that it doesn't count in your mouth, in your brain, or at the pharmacy. So they want to change that, they want to expand it to cover all health care, and they want to decriminalize all drugs, which is pretty great. A few other things I'd mention is fare-free and expanded public transit. So in order to address the climate crisis and inequality, making it cheaper to ride the bus than to drive your car, a gas price watchdog to compel the major oil companies to prevent price fixing and price gouging. And how are you going to pay for it? How are you socialists going to pay for it? Well, we're going to raise taxes on the ultra-rich, including a wealth tax. So I'm pretty happy with the platform. I think it could go further. Obviously, everything can always go further when you're aiming for perfect utopia, as we always are on the show. But really good. Damn good. Way better than 2015. Way better than any platform I've seen in my voting life. Really excellent candidates, too. And Jagmeet's the first racialized leader of a Canadian political party in history. Yeah, he is a Sikh. So those are the major parties. There are a few other ones. For example, the next biggest would be the Bloc Québécois. They run candidates in Quebec and are focused on 
Quebec-centric issues. They usually elect a decent amount of people to the parliament and so have the potential to be kind of relevant power brokers in the case of a minority government where coalitions need to be formed. Recently, Quebec passed a, quote, secularism law about displays of religiosity in public servants, saying that it's against the law. It's been really controversial, both in Quebec and out of Quebec, because of the way that it specifically targets Muslims and sick people who wear head coverings and turbans. They say it's about religiosity versus secularism and separation between church and state, but this is unevenly applied, like the Quebec National Assembly literally has an enormous crucifix on the wall. This is something that targets very, very specifically Muslim and Sikh public servants. So that's been really controversial and has also fed this narrative that Jagmeet is going to have a hard time in Quebec because he's a turban-wearing Sikh. Also, there is the Green Party. They run candidates all over the country. Historically, have just usually gotten one seat, their leader, Elizabeth May. They currently have two right now. Yeah, so Elizabeth May was elected first in 2011. They've been running for decades and decades. There's also a really pernicious dynamic in Canada around the first-past-the-post system, that is, whoever gets the most votes wins. So the Greens and NDP, broadly seen as on the left, with the Liberals by the electorate, you have this vote-splitting dynamic, uh, which is why there's been a lot of movement towards electoral reform or proportional system, like you see in a lot of countries around the world. The Liberals campaigned in 2015 of making 2015 the last election under first-past-the-post. Once they were in power, they decided that they liked the system that was working for them, and they betrayed that promise. And then we also have, finally, the Fascist Party of Canada, or the People's Party of Canada, who have never won any seats. They're brand new, and we should all hate them, but they are in the mix, making headlines. <laughs> they do have one seat because Max Bernier was elected as a conservative, ran for leader of the conservatives and lost, and then broke off and formed his own party. The People's Party has never won a seat, but they do currently have one. So yeah, I think that's a good... Yeah, that's I how politics sort of works in Canada. Covered where we're at in Canada, the different parties, and, and uh, yeah. Election season starts now. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. I am your co-host, Sean. I am Aaron. And today on the show, we've got a very special guest, longtime anti-war activist, writer, co-founder of Ricochet Media, socialist dad, and a rare Generation Xer who is actually a leftist, because no one was leftist in the 90s, Derek O'Keefe, also a recent municipal candidate in Vancouver. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Uh, Aaron, great to be here, and that's a very flattering bio. What was it like in the 90s not knowing any other leftists your age? It was really weird. On the day of the APEC protests, now for millennial listeners out there, the APEC protests were sort of like the Battle of Seattle. Oh, wait, you may not have heard of that either. But Battle of Seattle happened in December 1999. Two years before that, there was a big international trade summit at the University of British Columbia campus. And it basically sort of descended into police repression. But I started that morning in an international economics and trade course at UBC, like a first year econ course. And I literally stood up and made this impassioned speech for these first-year economics students to join me to learn about international trade at this protest happening on our campus. There was literally a fence cutting the campus in half and police and army helicopters uh, circling. And needless to say, like I was the only one who left the class. And so I did a walkout of one and joined all these off-campus radicals or out-of-town agitators for a big protest and almost got pepper sprayed and, yes, yeah, saw the police violence firsthand. And all the people who stayed in that class are now millionaires or a hundred thousandaires. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're probably 
probably my landlord or something. Yeah. Oh man, that's so bad. It's just like, ah, oh, we need to do this. Who's with me? No one. Okay, I'm marching out. It's just yeah. me. And inspired by that, sort of followed that model through my life. You know, even into electoral politics. So like, that was 1997. The world is a much worse and much better place now. So it's like the best timeline and the most horrific timeline. I just sort of take it for granted now that there's going to be like a decent amount of people around who have like decent politics. It's interesting to think because yeah, in that 90s sort of like cultural cynicism like david cross was as left-wing as you could get but you're like how were you even alive in the 90s you're like so young i was a child and there was no social media where you could like find people on the other side of the world who shared your weird left-wing perspective you'd take the bus home from your economics course of whatever drudgery you were taking and the year i got there they had just canceled the last marxist economics course at ubc and it would just be like you're riding the bus and someone else would be reading noam chomsky and they should be like oh my god comrade like let's talk you don't know Chomsky. That was social networking in those days. You just look for someone reading Chomsky. Yeah, our millennial brains are like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Don't you just find a Facebook group like sounds like you're not reading Noam Chomsky, but okay. And then like <laughs> two dozen people. Yeah, it was sad, lonely times. Like I said, but the not to minimize how the, the scary timeline we're in. And although we do have these sort of renewed democratic socialist and radical social movements throughout the world, and even starting to some extent in Canada, we're also dealing with really, really terrifying events worldwide and that sort of xenophobic openly racist organizing is definitely coming to Canada and we're going to see it in this election. Well, yeah, with the People's Party of Canada, the Maxime Bernier, his supporters called him Mad Max and they wanted to sort of like memify him and make him like a Trump type person. His like big claims to fame are being more racist than the conservatives, even though they're doing their best to dog whistle and more transphobic also. Also, he's really known for just his selfie stick. He's just sort of the angry middle-aged guy walking around doing selfie stick Facebook lives in Ottawa. I think he's sort of like it's part far-right political party and part auditioning for like a new Koch brothers sponsored show with the alt-right media sphere in the United States after this election. Oh, yeah, I feel yeah. like he's auditioning to be like the new Dave Rubin or whatever. Yeah, he's going to be like the spoiler for the conservatives for one election and then go off and retire, make people's media and like do his like Alex yeah. Jones fist banging. Yeah, but I don't about... think he's the spoiler. I think he's like the pace car. He's like testing out memes and dog whistles and just outright racist, xenophobic stuff. And then Shears people kind of calibrate how far they can go based on the success or failure of Bernier. Mm. I'm not saying this is like consciously planned. This is not a but, yeah. But thing. in effect, he's sort of the conservative trial balloon that he can go out there and try out these different things. Yeah. And then without the conservative brand losing any of their reputation, they can be like, oh, that one worked, but that part didn't. And like, Andrew can say that in the debates, but he can't say that. I think so. And part of this is that conservative voters and people who are consciously sort of cheering on the capitalist establishment, they're way more class conscious and way more strategic in their voting. So I think that Bernier is not really going to split away too many votes, but he can have a really toxic effect at like pulling the discourse to the right. So I just wouldn't call him a spoiler. But yeah, the reason that we have Derek on the show today is because we're at the precipice of a Canadian federal election and almost no one seems to really be paying attention to it. There's a sense of like, what? There's about to be an election like this year? And it's like, yeah, it's a federal election. It's the biggest election that we have. It's like the most important. It determines who the prime minister is. It's like a big thing. And it's less than two months away. 
And there's just sort of like this popular apathy. It hasn't broken through to a lot of people. And then also just the media coverage of it has been really, really lacking. And I think it's important that we on the left are able to make our own counter narratives and interventions in the discourse to help sort of like push the conversations that we need to be having about what sort of election this is and like what should be our stance on it? How should we think about this election as people who want to have like a radically different, more progressive society that better takes care of people and, and so on because that narrative is really missing and like you can see that in the mainstream sort of Canadian media coverage of the NDP in the same way that you would see in the anti-Bernie coverage in the U.S. or anti-Corbyn coverage in the U.K. as far as like the CBC and, and other Canadian media is concerned is like the NDPs in this perpetual horrible crisis and they're polling so low even though they're polling around the same area that they've always polled like as long as they've existed is like 15 percent 18 percent territory is like completely normal but it's being treated as like doomsday for the ndp and it's like and it's the same way they talked about the ndp in 2011 leading up to the point when the ndp actually became the official opposition for the first time in history so i feel like there's a need to sort of counter signal that and i thought it'd be good to bring uh, derek on the show uh because he's got experience in independent media co-founder of ricochet which you can check out at ricochet.media which is also related to the podcast network that like Alberta Advantage are on. So I think we need to have like a little bit of an intervention and discussion about this upcoming election because there's so much shit happening and it's sort of an interesting time. And just key for me is that the fucking NDP's got a wealth tax. I just, we got a wealth tax. We got it. We got the wealth tax. It's in the platform. Our friend Jeff Berner has this song that is just the name of the song and the chorus is just take the billionaire's money away. I mean, I think that's the name of the song. That's basically the whole song. Let's take the billionaire's money away. And Jagmeet Singh and the NDP have a policy that is designed to take the billionaire's money away. You know, you said there's been this sort of media dismissal pylon on the NDP in a way similar to Sanders and Corbyn in the US and UK. I would just argue that it's not nearly at that scale. It's more like the media is completely ignoring and dismissing. And I actually have recently been arguing for a sort of strategy of political media jiu-jitsu by the NDP to do things and say things that will provoke more of a right-wing media pylon and attack on the NDP so that more people become aware of these policies like the wealth tax. So I don't think the NDP has advertised the wealth tax enough because it generates the kind of over-the-top response in the right-wing media that will make ordinary people say like, oh, wow, the Financial Post is really worried about this wealth tax. So there's this headline, actually, in the Financial Post just the other day that I have sitting here. I'm just going to pull up. The NDP's new tax the rich plan is terrible, even by their standards. That's the headline, Financial Post. The NDP should be aiming to get 10, 20 more of those headlines so that the wealth tax becomes like one of the issues that can't be avoided. Well, why should they do that? Because they're the only party proposing a wealth tax. And this is a new thing. Like, this is not Mulcair's NDP anymore. All the evidence suggests people want to hear about taking money away from super rich people. Like, we're talking like super rich people. This tax, the wealth tax, only kicks in on people with a $20 million fortune. Anyone at that level of wealth, even with the most sort of conservative, low interest investments, the wealth tax is just sort of skimming off a little bit of what they're generating by doing nothing each year. And when you get into the billionaires, it's way too low. The NDP's proposal should actually have higher brackets. It should be progressive. So when you get to a $50 million fortune, the rate goes up. Their tax is proposing a one cent on the dollar for every dollar over $20 million. 
in my view, the ultimate goal of these sort of policies should be to eliminate billionaires and to recognize a billionaire as a policy failure and just take those enormous sums of money that are sloshing around up in the offshore accounts of the super rich and in ridiculous consumption like Chip Wilson's uh, $80 million compound mansion. Take that money and invest it in the type of green energy transition we need, expanding healthcare, pharmacare, all these good things we need because they always throw the charge at the NDP that where are you going to get the money? Where are you going to get the money to pay for all these good things? And the NDP should just be very in your face about it. We're going to take it from the super rich. And we use this sort of premise when we were both involved in the process of Gene's by-election campaign. So Gene Swanson in 2017 running for city council and then last year ran again, ended up winning. By the way, we had Gene Swanson on the show now, city councillor in Vancouver on episode 130, Gene Against the Machine. Really interesting history from her, really experienced activist. But it was so useful to have in our back pocket going door to door or whatever else is that you're saying like, oh, we need to build this social housing. We need a rent freeze. And people would always throw like, oh, how are you going to pay for it? People are very trained in politics to think that any proposal for something good is impossible and that it's now the role of us as voters to play the cynical accountant <laughs> anytime someone proposes a good idea. But you just be like mansion tax and they'd be like, oh, yeah, I like that. Why don't we just take those billionaires' money away? Away! Yes. But I just want to inject, because we're in fucking election season, man. Like, election season is this massively destabilizing time where you can see huge jumps or up and down in the polls. In 2011, leading up to the election, no one expected that the NDP was going to come from behind and get into second place under Jack Layton. And in 2015, no one expected that Trudeau was going to increase the largest seat increase in Canadian history of 140-something seats, I think 143 seats, from third place up to majority government. But that shit happens in, in Canadian elections. People only pay attention for a month and a half so what's said in that month and a half really really matters yeah it's a we actually have a very volatile electoral multi-party system and i think maybe because people pay so much attention to u.s politics you're sort of thinking always in that two-party framework it's the republicans and democrats and can people graph that onto the liberals and conservatives but we have this totally influx system in canada and justin trudeau had fewer seats before the 2015 election than Jagmeet Singh and the NDP have now. But it's totally all the pundits are just like, it's over for the NDP. They're done. Oh, well, the party even survived this election. Whereas with Justin Trudeau, you know, he basically had a strong media push behind him in 2015. But it was an, an amazing turnaround. In 1993, the progressive conservative government was wiped out completely down to like two seats. And the party, it sort of limped along for a decade or so. But they basically refounded the right wing politically in Canada by the Reform Party becoming the crap party, whatever that was, Canadian Reform Alliance Party, and then eventually sort of merging back and taking over as the Conservative Party of Canada and putting the old PC party out of business. So I guess my point is the right wing is comfortable, one, working with parties that are not perfectly aligned with them ideologically. Andrew Scheer doesn't talk about all the right wing ideological issues they want him to, but they know that, that he's their guy in this election. And they'll also go out and create other vehicles if they need to. So they formed the Reform Party. They, they formed the new Canadian Conservative Party of Harper. They merged with the PCs, whereas we're a little bit organizationally conservative on the left. 
whereas we have the NDP. And what the people who are to the left of the NDP do is just sort of a criticism of it. There's rarely like a sustained engagement with electoral politics, and we haven't seen like a serious effort to form something to the left of the NDP. So in the absence of something viable to the left of the NDP, when you're like seven weeks away from an election, people need to like get behind the mechanism that they can use to change politics. Canadian politics are fluid and, and really unstable. So people should see a six weeks or a month of the election contest as a key moment to intervene in the class struggle. Even if you're a leftist who despises politicians and like all the crap that we know does go along with, with electoral politics, these are times to intervene and shape the balance of forces. Today's episode of the Seriously Wrong Podcast is proudly brought to you by a principled leftist who's deciding to do the right thing this election season. All right, well, the writ's about to drop, so I'm going to hang up my shitposting gloves. So, although my natural tendency is to always be reflexive on the left and criticize, I recognize that in this election, the stakes are pretty high. A liberal-hung parliament with an NDP balance of power is our best shot at electoral reform, stopping the pipeline expansion, getting universal health care, attacks on wealth, and so on and so on. And this is a real thing that's within our reach. So I'm putting down the shitposting gloves, and now I am a Jagmeet stan for six weeks. I'm just going to stan him. I stan Jagmeet until the end of the election. Let's see what happens. It's the principled thing to do. That's a pragmatic and principled leftist who is the sponsor of today's episode of Seriously Wrong. And yeah, back to the show. The mainstream media is focusing on how the NDP hasn't nominated any candidates in New Brunswick, but very few people are paying attention to the candidates they have nominated, who are some of the most progressive, longtime grassroots activists, young climate activists. You know, they have some star candidates who are just getting zero media attention. So I think if the NDP is able to turn this election around by polarizing it around wealth tax and, and pushing for a Green New Deal, there could be some Canadian AOCs out there ready to emerge. I mean, that's a big if. Just I'll quickly give a shout out to a few candidates that I'm really fond of. Matthew Green is killing it. Matthew I like Green him because awesome. he retweets me often. So if he's radical enough to retweet me, he's, he's a good one. He's a keeper. There's also Lee <laughs> Gazan <laughs> in Winnipeg. She's awesome. Breen Willette in Vancouver Center, and also, of course, Sven Robinson's return to politics in Burnaby North Seymour, just a real stalwart Canadian left for a long time, done a bunch of really awesome stuff over the years. No, you're underselling Sven Robinson. For your listener, because I know you have people listen to the show all, all over, I mean, the world, but all over North America, a lot of American listeners, Sven Robinson is like the Bernie Sanders of the North, but with, I would argue, a even more crammed CV of both activist and parliamentary accomplishment. For 25 years, he was this uncompromising, relentless left-wing voice in parliament and on the barricades of social movements. Like that day when I got nearly pepper sprayed at UBC in 1997, mm -hmm. Sven Robinson was there like on the front lines with the protesters, like clashing with the police, basically. Not that he was clashing with police, but getting clashed by the police. He was arrested blockading against logging at Clackwatt Sound when the NDP was in power provincially. Mm -hmm. He was an, a federal NDP representative who went and sat down and blocked logging roads. He got kicked out of the People's Republic of China for bringing up human rights issues. What else? Oh, he literally went to Ramallah in Palestine when it was under siege by the Israeli Defense Forces and was seen on video like 
physically pushing past armed IDF soldiers to try to go and do his diplomatic mission to visit the elected Palestinian leadership. So this is like a remarkable historical figure who is now coming back after 15 years out of electoral politics. And maybe you didn't want to give him his like full glowing biography because you're so immersed, as I know you are helping out on that campaign. But, you know, I just I think it's hard to overstate the dynamism and also like if he's able to get back in in this election, I think the next parliament in Canada will be a much more exciting and progressive thing. I'm kind of a fan of Sven Robertson. I should <laughs> Oh, back in the 90s when there were like no left. He was the <laughs> leftist. So I grew up in the suburbs of Vancouver, but my big field trip for my Journalism 12 course that I was taking was to go and interview Sven Robinson. And the weird thing was he gave me like an hour and a half for the interview. I think he was preparing to run for leader of the party at the time. He was a fairly busy guy, but he spent an hour and a half talking to the 17-year-old kid who, you know, had no other leftist friends and just a lonely kid uh, <laughs> looking for direction in the world. And, and there was there was Fend. It's quite an inspiring thing that he's making this comeback. So when he was on the front lines at Clayquot Sound, there was this huge like media campaign to prosecute Svend. Front page of the Vancouver Sun, like, you must prosecute Sven Robinson. And the whole like media narrative was like, oh, the NDP are protecting their own. Like Sven broke the law, but since he's in with the premier's office, like they're gonna not prosecute him. So there's all this media pressure to like bring him to trial over it. Goes to jail for two weeks. He comes out looking like a fucking GQ model. It's the best photo of Sven that exists. <laughs> he looks so good in Whoa, this picture, I man. I think we need to pause the recording and like see the photo. Look at this photo here. That's him that. coming out of jail? That's him coming out of jail. My God. So he gets out of jail after two weeks. And the thing that he says to the, like, there's all the media there for him, you know, member of parliament leaving jail. He did two things. He quickly just condemns the prison system and also says the people who should be in jail are the ones destroying our environment, not me. But that sounds like quite a bit like, because I was there the day Jean Swanson got out of jail last summer. It sounds a lot like her. So Sean is a follower of, of social ecology and a radical activist who has a podcast listened to by a lot of radical activists, but he also dabbles in electoral politics. So I have figured out your thing. You will only work for politicians who will go to jail for important cause. It and helps. then you'll like, like help their electoral campaigns. When Jean got out, when she came to the COPE nomination meeting, like right out after Straight coming from jail. out of jail. Yeah. And she, she was like, oh, the people in jail were so nice. And also, we need to abolish prisons. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. That's how you generate media stories. Yeah, totally. Media no, but yes, Sven's awesome. I can't praise him enough, obviously. And the other thing that I found out that I just thought was so excellent was that the former prime minister, Stephen Harper, said in opposition, there is no politician I disagree with more often than Sven Robinson. And if that isn't a fucking endorsement, then I don't know what is. Yeah, there is essentially no national media coverage of any of these local candidates. So, I mean, their local publications will be talking about their races, but there's no national coverage. And so here's the thing is we've got less than two months until this election happens. And for any Canadians listening, there's a way to plug in to a local campaign where you have like a good, strong leftist candidate with the NDP. And so I just want to like advocate for that to like look for people around you to get involved with maybe volunteer door knocking and stuff like that. For a couple reasons, I mean, one of which is that we don't know what direction this election is going to go. There's a real chance that the NDP could form the balance of power here. But also, it's just really, really good experience. And I think this is the key point, is that all of us as leftists should be knocking on doors every now and then and get that experience of that face-to-face -face contact with voters and see what it's like when you talk about something like a wealth tax and when you talk about like a radical climate transition, what the reaction's like with people on the door and experience talking to them. It's like a really, I think, enriching experience has been beneficial to my politics to be involved in that door-to-door -door stuff.
Hi there, uh, my name's Sean. I'm a volunteer with some sort of activist or political organization. I'm telling you that I'm a volunteer right away intentionally, so you're more likely to be nice to me. And I'm also identifying who I come from to try to more put you at ease. First, I'm going to try to build some sort of rapport with you, but I'm also going to make clear why I'm here at the same time. Maybe asking an open-ended question that is likely to provoke some sort of response, but it's also related to the topic at hand. How do you feel about the organization's main enemy? Well, I've read some bad things about that enemy in the paper recently. I'm going to try to keep it as friendly and positive as possible with you while trying to hear you out at the same time and not forcing my ideas on you. Right. At the same time, I'm going to strongly push my narrative in any way I can in a friendly way so that overall the interaction was positive. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, based on what I'm doing, I'm either going to try to get some identifying information about you, i.e., who you are and what you think about the thing related to my cause, but crucially, I'm also going to try to get your contact information, which helps build the organization's capacity to grow in the future. I mean, based on your warm attitude, I feel pretty comfortable giving you my contact information. Thank you so much. Oh, that's awesome. Depending on how you ask, a lot of people are willing to give up their contact information, and contact information is part of the currency that allows organizations to grow. So. Thank you so much for that. Any little bit I can do to help, I guess. There's a good chance that I'll have some sort of petition. Do you want to sign it? Sure, yeah. At this point, I probably won't even know much about what the petition is, but I'm in the social interaction now, and I feel vaguely positive about you or your organization, so I'll put my name on it, yeah. And there's the email and phone field. Plug those right in. Uh, Should I do both? Yes. Sure. Now, if you're in an electoral organization or a grassroots organization, if you want to accomplish anything that involves connecting with people in a geographic area Mm. or even broadly, the ability to go to people's doors, have friendly conversations with them, push some of your ideas, and collect their contact information is something that will serve you well. No matter what your political aims are, it's a great skill. Yeah, definitely. It seems really basic and important. And a good place to train on this important skill is in the upcoming Canadian federal election. I'm trying to think how to word this right. I just want to like cover my bases for these hypothetical people. Oh, you boosted the NDP too much. You should have talked about how they're bad. Well, more. I mean, I have a point. You'll you'll have some listeners on Vancouver Island who will look at it and say like, well, look, I have a green candidate that has a chance of winning. And I think the green critique of the NDP on something like fracking and LNG is important and I support it. So I'm thinking of Paul Manley. He won the by-election and he was a longtime Council of Canadians activist, documentary filmmaker. He's actually the son of a former NDP MP, Jim Manley. Mm-hmm. And when he signed up to seek the NDP nomination in 2015 under Tom Mulcair's leadership, he was sort of vetted out. And the strong suspicion from Paul and the Manley family and others was that it was directly related to him speaking out when his father, Jim Manley, was jailed for participating in a flotilla protest of the blockade of Gaza. So he was jailed in Israel for a few days. And Paul Manley was upset that the NDP didn't do more to help his father get out of jail. And essentially, they didn't let Paul Manley run for the NDP. So then he ran for the Greens. He lost in 2015. But then he he's won and he's now sitting as the second Green MP. So I think some listeners will say like, you know, I support the green critique of the NDP. I'm going to support them. And I think in a few writings that actually might make sense, especially on Vancouver Island. But for every valid green critique of the NDP, there are at least as many 
valid NDP critiques of the Greens. And the problem with these debates between Green supporters and NDP partisans is they're both right in their critiques of each other's parties. The Greens are anti-many demands of the labor movement. They're sort of pro-capitalist solutions, sort of green capitalism. They have this horrific slogan borrowed from Tony Blair in the 90s of neither left nor right, forward, which is just the most awful centrist nonsense that should have been left behind years ago. You know, both parties have valid critiques of each other because they both point up the sort of contradictions in the whole project of environmentalism under capitalism and social democracy under contemporary capitalism. So that's why I identify as an eco-socialist. That's exactly what I was about to say is like, as long as neither of these parties are eco-socialist parties, they're going to continue to have really good critiques of each other. and, And that's what we need, right? Is like, we need a party and whether that's one of the existing parties or a new party to come forward and be like unabashedly eco-socialist in a really real way and fight those battles in a real sense because we're headed into decades and decades of eco-socialism or eco-barbarism it's like that's Mm -hmm. that's the future that we have so it's like kind of we're already there i mean you see these mass shooters now are writing eco-fascist justifications for their mass murders like eco-fascism is becoming a real deadly force in the world and the only answer to that is to look at the ecological crisis in a totally anti-nationalist, anti-chauvinist, anti-racist way and to link climate issues with migrant justice. Mm-hmm. And really, you're going to have to be eco-socialist to do that. But I mean, for people looking at this election, you got six weeks to get involved and, and do it. I would say from what I've seen, there are more viable local campaigns with very left-wing NDP candidates running on some very strong platform points. So I think for most listeners, that would be a place to get involved. But I don't like these partisans, you know, all the sort of crossfire between the Greens and NDP. I think the metaphorical fire should be on the establishment parties and and this whole corrupt setup we have in Canada where we've only basically only ever been governed by liberal and conservatives in various coalitions and arrangements. Yeah, and that's actually that's something I really like about working on the Sven Robinson campaign is that we've got people uh, heavily involved who are typically members of the Green Party or like even card carrying members of the Green Party and they're saying like well, I'm an eco-socialist, so I'm supporting Sven. And it's like I mean, the- Sven Robinson is more green than any green candidate. Literally went to jail to stop clear-cut logging. And I'm sure there are, you know, a lot of green candidates out there with good labor policies and labor activists who just ended up in that party. So, yeah, the other factor is right now, uh, the Nanos tracking polls show that the liberals are narrowly ahead of the conservatives in terms of seat count, but almost every poll that's coming out shows that they have only a minority and that the NDP or some combination of NDP and Greens and maybe Bloc Québécois will hold the balance of power. So the Liberals would need to make some kind of arrangement with either the NDP or the NDP and the Greens to form a government. Like this is quite a likely scenario. So I think we should all be thinking if that scenario plays out and it's a minority government negotiation taking place, we should be having like demonstrations across the country for electoral reform. Mm -hmm. where the NDP says to the Liberals, we'll let you form a government for now, but you have to implement electoral reform as the first order of business. Mm -hmm. It should be that that's the non-negotiable thing. Because if we could get electoral reform, then you could have lots of NDP MPs, lots of Green MPs, maybe future hypothetical eco-socialist party MPs, you know, whatever. You could have a diversity, political diversity, and people could vote for what they actually want instead of 
going back to this stupid two-party framework that people always get back into where, I, you know, Trudeau betrayed everything he promised us. Including electoral reform. Andrew Scheer is really scary. But yeah, I mean, come on, guys, get the wool off your eyes. He never intended to do electoral reform. The reason he betrayed that promise is because the system's working for him. It's not working for you, man. He knows that he's always going to be the least worst option of the two ones that are considered viable. Like, that's why you abandon electoral reform. None of this bullshit reasons he's talked about are like, oh, there's these extremist parties or niche groups or whatever. Shut the fuck up, man. We know that you just want to be the least bad, plausible option to people. And somebody looked it up, right? Like the sheer number of times that Trudeau made that false promise for electoral reform. Mm-hmm. And it was he first came out strong for electoral reform when the liberals were trailing in third place badly in 2015 he was like way out of it people were already writing his political obituary like a lightweight nothing compared to his father the towering intellect of canadian history he was kind of the butt of a joke right the butt of of all our political jokes in early 2015 then one of the things he did was say i will make sure this is the last ever first past the post election and that sort of gave permission to a lot of progressives to move from ndp or green to vote liberal they Mm -hmm. said i'm just gonna vote this time because he's gonna do it he's gonna do it and it, it was completely cynical So this Mm. is like a deeply, deeply cynical person. Gerald Butts sketch, number one. So Gerald Butts walks into a massage parlor and he's like, please, my forearms and my hands, they're so tense. You please massage them. And so the masseuse is there. They're like, oh, right this way, Mr. Butts. Yeah, we're we're happy to massage those arms. Roll up your sleeve a bit. Oh, my. Oh, jeez. Well, this is tight. Mr. Butzer, how did your forearms and hands get so tense? What do you do for work? Yeah, what do you do? I've never seen hands and forearms like this. Mr. Butzer, you've got these really small cuts on your fingers. Where are these cuts from? Maybe you should get some lotion for those cuts. Yeah, a little bit of lotion for those cuts. I bet with fingers this strong, you can articulate each finger individually. Like, you must have very, not just strong, but... Also nimble. Sir, that looks like string burn. What do you do for work with all these strings? Use the forearms and hands so much. We're so curious. We're just Mr. Butts, dying please, to know what you do. We're both so curious. Massage parlor confidentiality applies here. Oh, yeah. We would never if spill your secrets, If Mr. it's a Butts. sensitive issue, you can tell us. Don't underestimate how powerful it is to experience a muscle release and an emotional release at the same time, Mr. Butts. Gotta tell us, Mr. Butts, what do you do for work? Finally, he gives in. He says, okay, I won't just tell you. I'll show you. And he leans back in his chair, grabs the remote from the little table. There's a table at the massage parlor, he points it at the TV, turns it on. On the TV, it's the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. We need a Canada that works for people who build pipelines and those working to one day build pipelines. I can't just govern for the poor and those who need help. I also must govern for the very, very rich who have more than they could ever need. And I won't take that away. I'll let them keep it all. And so they sit there for a minute. They're watching the TV and the masseuses are like, I don't get it. What do you do? And Gerald Butts looks at them, starts moving his fingers up and down individually and says, I'm a puppeteer. The other thing I think uh, people haven't talked about at all, and this is maybe off our theme, but you know when Gerald Butts quit because of his involvement or implication in the SNC-Lavalin scandal when the former attorney general blew the whistle on all this, 
Gerald Butts was one of those guys who like, I'm going to quit to do my job more. Like, you know, I'm sure they had a little break and he maybe took a holiday to de-stress. But Gerald Butts is back doing exactly the same job. He is the brains behind this liberal campaign. And it's just weird that that didn't get commented on at all. I was arguing on Twitter with him recently, so he's on the top of my mind. But he's sort of back to the same old Gerald Butts. I remember, I think it's a Gerald Butts quote regarding the 2015 election. I think it was Gerald Butts who said the NDP had their boot on our neck, but then they took it off and walked away. Yeah, yeah. He's Uh, describing when Tom Mulcair came out and said he would absolutely rule out deficit spending. Mulcair had all these like announcements where he like wouldn't he basically acted like Stephen Harper like he wouldn't take questions and he would announce some really centrist or almost conservative thing just to show how serious he was and ready to be prime minister and one of them when he came out and ruled out deficit spending so Gerald Butts later said he told biographers or something he said that's when I knew we won the election or we could win the election they basically just like opened the door and Trudeau and Butts walked through it. I mentioned Gerald Butts because it's not just because he's quick with his replies on Twitter when he's arguing with me, but he's a highly intelligent, effective communications operative. And he basically scripts the lines that Trudeau recites very well every day. So I don't think we should underestimate their ability to campaign and communicate. I guess that's why I'm sort of urging the the NDP, which I think has its best platform in a generation, at least back to Ed Broadbent in the 80s, like even before my time, like... There hasn't been a platform this good since before even I, the old Gen Xer, was like participating in federal elections. It was definitely um, the best I've seen since I but started I think, voting. But they need a more like combative strategy to get the to get the public discussion up around this. And maybe just on that note, there it worked for Jeremy Corbyn in 2017. Initially, it, the election was called, and it was like he's doomed. The Labour Party's going to be destroyed. Corbyn's going to be a joke. And then there's sort of the, the overwhelming negative media attention had this blowback effect where people became so fed up they started the hashtag we are his media and it just really energized the base to spread the word about the labor manifesto in 2017 which again the media dismissed as like insanely radical it wasn't even that radical they're proposing much more radical stuff now two years later but basically they turned that whole negative media attention around and in france there's a party called france insoumise la france insoumise by a former socialist party member jean-luc melenchon oh yeah and uh, it's kind of one of these new we read his platform on the show once right right there you go and well actually he is sort of a prickly intellectual and combative guy and a prickly personality from all accounts but he sort of created this persona where like he would just be super rude to anytime someone asked him a question he didn't like and and super hostile on these media interviews and the party actually found that that was a way of getting him continually invited back because it made for good radio and television to have this sort of he became a sort of character as like this combative grumpy socialist but who would just tell the mainstream media they were full of shit like right to their face and and it worked so it was like this conscious strategy of antagonizing the mainstream media to get attention and then you use those clips of those really antagonistic mainstream media moments and they just go viral amongst your supporters so you know a jagmeet singh is not necessarily it won't necessarily come naturally to him i don't think he's that type of person he seems like a nice guy he's super nice i met him he's like really really chill guy so I don't I don't necessarily advocate that approach in the media, but I do think there needs to be a more aggressive approach in advocating these policies that they have. Start writing up Chip Wilson's new tax bills and like go into his mansion. <laughs> it was really really fun to march there and protest. Uh... Gerald Butt sketch two. So Gerald Butts is upset. He's so depressed. He needs help. He needs to go see a psychiatrist. So he goes to a psychiatrist and he tells the psychiatrist. Oh, doctor, doctor, I am 
depressed. Life seems harsh and cruel. I have to step down. We pressured the attorney general to give a deferred prosecution to this criminal enterprise that illegally donated over $100,000 to us. It's this whole big mess, unethical behavior on our part. And I feel all alone in a threatening world. What lies ahead is vague and uncertain. So the psychiatrist pats him on the shoulder and says, oh, oh, my son, I see this all the time. It's so sad how depressed you are. You're totally depressed. But I got great news. I know the perfect cure for your depression. There's this great puppeteer in town. His name is Gerald Butts. You should go see him tonight. And Gerald Butts says, but doctor, I am Gerald Butts. So Aaron, Derek and I are, we're more plugged into like Canadian electoral politics. We follow this stuff all the time. We're like on Twitter about it and and stuff like that. But you're Canadian. You live in Vancouver. You're interested in politics. You host a weekly political podcast, but you're not as plugged into like Canadian electoral politics as we are. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on why that is or what keeps you out of Canadian politics or like what makes it less interesting for you? I mean, as we were leading up to doing this episode, I was thinking, oh, God, I got to cram and, like, learn about this Canadian election coming up because I don't know that much. And so I watched Jagmeet's platform speech, announcing the platform speech, and I watched Andrew Shear do a couple things, and I was like, okay, I got a basic feel for it. But listening to you two talk, you know, a lot of inside baseball, I felt, like, completely out of my depth for a lot of this conversation. But, yeah, like, I had a kind of realization about Canadian politics recently and why I think... I haven't paid that much attention to it. When I was watching the American presidential primary, it's not even the election, the election's a year away, and I'm watching the Democratic presidential primaries and thoroughly interested. And people are kind of commenting on it like, oh, it's such a spectacle. It's more like a reality show than politics. But like that grabs your attention and holds your attention. It has production value. And Canadian politics don't have a very good production value. A lot of the time it looks like public access TV or something. And this is totally like an unprincipled reason to not be paying attention to politics in the country you live in, the places that affect your family and stuff. Like, I should be paying more attention to politics. And, I mean, it's going to be hard for Canadian politics to match the spectacle that is American politics, but... I do think that that plays a big part as to why Canadians are more disconnected from the political system than Americans are. It's just not a good show on TV sometimes. And when I say production value, I don't just mean like slick title cards and good cameras and lighting and stuff like that. I also mean like, you know, producers on reality shows engineer conflict and situations and things that are interesting for people. And I think about what you were saying, Derek, about having a more confrontational style or trying to get these NDP policies into the public sphere. And I just, yeah, think of how big of a difference that makes. Well, Justin Trudeau's political career in terms of leadership aspirations was literally launched by a Sun News charity boxing match, televised charity boxing match in Mm. which he defeated a hand-picked non-boxing fighter an indigenous (laughs) conservative and and then proceeded to weirdly (laughs) 
ceremonially cut his hair after he was defeated, the indigenous man whose name is Patrick escaping Brizzo. me, Patrick Brizzo, sorry. But this spectacle, which was put on by Sun TV before it sort right. of folded into the weird uh, Rebel TV Canadian Breitbart thing that it is now, and Ezra Levant was like doing the color commentary for the boxing match, thinking Trudeau would lose. And then Trudeau won this little charity boxing match. And that became like the narrative shift where it's like, he must be destined to be prime minister. This like lightweight son of Pierre Trudeau won a boxing match that we televised. So it's like, yeah, yeah, the importance of like television and spectacle and production. And even if it's something as absurd as like two irrelevant Canadian politicians fighting. So what you're saying is Jagmeet Singh, who's very good at MMA, martial arts, and jiu-jitsu, and various things I believe he's trained really? in. MMA? Yeah, you're suggesting that, that he challenged Justin Trudeau to an MMA. Yeah, or like a billionaire, couldn't. maybe? Uh, a Canadian billionaire? Like, oh, that's even better. Like that Chip be Wilson? Great. Yeah. Jagmeet versus <laughs> a press conference like in the octagon where he's like, bring it. If I win, the wealth tax goes up to like 100%. Oh, yeah. The wealth tax just went up. But <laughs> be his new slogan. So this is the principled course we need to chart for the NDP. But I, I was sort of just riffing off your point of like the importance of the audiovisual spectacle and like to get yeah, well, the interest, like, the eyeballs on it. Yeah. Just in the like marketplace of attention, I guess, mm-hmm. then like you can criticize that. And I think there's a lot of really good criticisms of the spectacle of American politics, but it does make it really interesting to watch. And I believe it's a factor with the independent media sphere as well and landscape. I mean, Jacobin uh, magazine, which we were just talking about, has, has really taken off in the last few years, especially since Trump won. But as someone who has sort of tried leftist independent media in various outlets and, and tried a lot of these, mm. we have 10 times less people in our country. You just have less of a base, yeah. which media outlets need to really reach that critical mass where they can start to hire people and yeah where um, it becomes worth their money to put that production to reinvest in into, graphic yeah. designers and yeah. videographers and podcast producers right it's right like, well you can i mean here i am <laughs> sitting in sean's living room where you've set up quite an impressive studio but you know there's like a, any number of hundreds of american left or progressive ish outlets that would have their own offices and, and studios whereas most canadian independent media is literally being done in people's living rooms or just right. like in their bedrooms because the rent is so high here people don't really have living rooms that haven't been converted into bedrooms it's a rare thing you know every living room in vancouver is either a bedroom or a podcast studio <laughs> fact but actually going back to me kicking ass in public mm-hmm. kicking ass should be part of the ndp communication strategy they had a photo up with gsp recently in quebec Georges Saint-Pierre, the recently retired MMA, they had a photo op, but again, you didn't see it. Too busy following American politicians instead of Jack Meat's Twitter. I don't well, know. I think I would have seen it more if he was kicking someone's ass. I know he can do it. We need to find the right reason for him to kick someone's ass during this election. <laughs> then it's like, boom, polling in first. He can kick people's asses too? I'm voting for this guy. And now we go to the parliamentary scrum where Jagmeet Singh is fielding questions from reporters. For a long time, I've been saying, I will literally fight any billionaire and beat them. I'm so stoked today to announce that Chip Wilson has agreed to fight me one-on-one in the octagon. Advanced voting starts tomorrow, and I'd be so excited if each and every Canadian went and voted for the NDP after what they see tonight.
This is a super exciting fight to see leader of the Democratic Socialist Party physically fighting a billionaire. Chip Wilson, yeah, head of Lululemon, most expensive mansion in Vancouver. Oh man, Jagmeet is just he's getting him with that ground and pound right now. That is, oh man, it I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of that. No, this is not a fair fight, folks. Jagmeet clearly works out, and Chip Wilson... Yeah, why did he agree to this fight, Chip? He's just... Oh yeah, when he said that he would fight any billionaire any time, we thought that no billionaire would be foolish enough to agree. If I were to guess, I'd say that Chip Wilson has unresolved masculinity-related issues. And that's uh, the working family's triangle that he's got on triangle hold. This is an amazing fight, and just totally outmatched. Uh, is Chip trying to mount Jagmeet? That's not going to work. He's uh, no. Yeah, yeah, no, of course not. See, you see, Jagmeet with the prairie populism armbar. It looks like he's, yeah, he's doing the guillotine. Now the guillotine, for those of you who don't know, is a real MMA move. It's on the list of MMA glossaries of terms, if one were to Google that. And Jagmeet has got Chip Wilson in a guillotine right now, and it looks like Chip's moments are numbered. Now that is a literal guillotine, folks. A literal guillotine, the wrestling move. It's a submission move. It can be either a vascular or tracheal choke in which the attacker, in this case Jagmeet, wraps their arms around the defendant's neck and the attacker wrapping their legs around the defender. And le- oh, is Chip tapping out? Yep, that's uh, seen it. Really saved himself there with that tap out at the last moment. Well, I think all the billionaires are going to learn eventually that they'll have to bend to Jagmeet's will. Of course, because Jagmeet's will is the will of the people, and the will of the people is unstoppable. unstoppable. Yeah, absolutely. And just because, again, he is physically much stronger than Chip Wilson, certainly, as was proven tonight. Yeah, well, you know what? After seeing that, after seeing Jagmeet win in a physical fight against a billionaire, I am so excited to go advance vote for the NDP in this election, for my local MP candidate in my riding. Yeah, now that you mention it, I think I, too, might vote in the advance vote for the new Democratic Party of Canada in the 2019 election for my MP candidate in my riding. You know, one Jagmeet moment that really penetrated was when, I forget the exact quote, but I think he said he had better hair than Justin Trudeau. I think that was the Oh, quote. nice. Yeah. Well, I thought you were going to talk about that time during the leadership race when there's that racist woman at the event who was like heckling Jagmeet and he shut her down. And it was like it was on like now this and like American media, like this politician shutting down this race. The same thing mm. just happened to Jagmeet's brother, who's an MPP in Ontario, just got confronted by the leader of this I, new I saw that one, Citizens though. Alliance Party and called him out for his Islamophobia and hatred. But I mean, maybe we have stumbled into an important part of this dynamic and Everyone is writing Jagmeet Singh off, including many voices within the NDP in various factions of, of the different parties as they exist across the country. And we very rarely talk about the racism issue. Can we actually say the word? I mean, he's the first ever racialized leader of a national party in this country. He's got 40 seats, but everyone's treating him like a nothing, like maybe race and uh, his religion and religious symbols play a role. We now go to the people who totally promise that they are in no way racist sketch. Look, I'm not racist, obviously. You know me. People in Quebec especially, but also Alberta, the Prairies, all, you know, they're racist. And so I don't think he's going to win. And so I'm going to have to vote along with the racists. You know how it is. Yeah, I'm not worried about the people who are racist. I am worried about the people who are worried about the people who are racist. So I think that I'm probably going to act like the racist, voting-wise at least. See, I'm not worried about the people who are worried about the racists. But I am, honestly... 
pretty worried about the people who are worried about the people who are worried really about, worried about the, the people races. who are worried about the people who are worried about the people. And let me just before I'm I continue, someone who's point out that I'm actually at the top of this. I'm not worried about, worried about the people. I'm worried about worried about the people. I'm worried about the Kind of bigger brained on this. Look, I not racist. Obviously, you know me. One of the really big challenges in like addressing the real and persistent issue of racism in Canada is that it makes people like really disproportionately defensive because it's sort of like racism is this ultimate evil. And to realize that you're participating in it is like to feel evil or something like that. And actually, Aaron was telling me today that he was watching an Andrew Shear like stump speech where it seemed like Andrew Shear's like main point that he was making to the audience is like, too many people call other people racist these days and like you people aren't racist and they're like yeah we're not racist it's an interesting political platform it's not really like a policy suggestion. yeah it was a town hall and he mentioned it a few times how big of a problem it is that people are being called racist when they're not racist and it's really mean and the liberals are mean and they just attack people with these horrible words like racist and it's it has to stop i think yeah. the real threat is to calling those, people racist the potential that someone might be falsely accused of being racist when they're just xenophobic or bigoted i should probably drop the sarcasm i don't know i'm in a very sarcastic <laughs> these are not topics to be sarcastic about and actually like the confrontation between jagmeet's brothers the mpp like that confrontation he had i believe he was at a event with the Muslim community in maybe Brampton in his riding. Like, I think this white supremacist traveled a great distance to confront this MPP and others, who is, of course, of the Sikh faith, not not a Muslim, with this, like, vile xenophobic stuff. It actually brings up a very, like, serious concern about this election campaign and the overt racism we're going to see, not the just implicit stuff that Andrew Scheer is worried about. Yeah, and it's actually complementary, like you said, Derek. It's not like a strictly antagonistic relationship between the People's Party and the Conservative Party. They're pulling from the same rhetorical set, and they're playing on the same team. Like, their goals are very, very aligned. It's kind of like a uh, what they yell on the streets, we whisper in the boardroom kind of thing. I see the PPC's main role, Bernier's party and these like this extremist party that this guy was from that we just mentioned. Their role is to like test the discursive space for racism and xenophobia. Recently, they just put up billboards. Yeah, Supporters. that's what I was going to say. I just, uh, when I was Googling, I saw I saw the billboard yeah. to like end mass immigration or stop, stop mass, mass immigration, immigration. Something like that. And the article I read about it was all about whether or not it's fair to call this billboard racist. And yeah. it reminded me of the Andrew Scheer speech and like the, like it's, it's an interesting, like subtle kind of dog whistle just to be like, oh, it's, it's. It's really bad to call people racist when all they want to do is put up billboards about stopping mass immigration. And now we go to a publishing house where an aspiring horror writer pitches his passion project, a manuscript he's been slaving on forever, the scariest story he could possibly imagine, pitching it to a publisher. Here we go. Uh, thanks for having me in. It's really exciting to meet you. I'm a huge fan of so many of the books that, that you publish here. So scary. And I just hope that I could contribute to that with something really spooky, really scary, keep people up at night. Well, it's tough to scare me, but give it your best shot. So there are these kids that move into a new house with their family. It's sort of like a mysterious house. They come from another part of Canada. And going through the basement as they move in, they're moving their stuff downstairs, and they find this sort of strange doll, this little Cabbage Patch doll, Cabbage Patch type doll. With it, there's a little inscription saying this is a cursed doll. 
that you'll never be able to get rid of it, no matter how hard you try. And there's an inscription, it's like a Latin-type phrase, like a magical phrase, and the kids read it, and the cursed little Cabbage Patch doll, he springs to life and terrorizes the family and ultimately goes on to run for Prime Minister of Canada. And so when he runs for Prime Minister of Canada, his big sort of stump speech, his big platform point, is an appeal to people warning them that there's people who are going to call them racist even though they're not racist and that clicks with the canadian electorate they're like i'm not racist who's calling me racist and he, the cursed little doll says the other guys are calling you racist and all these defensive uh canadians who actually live in a society that has a lot of racism in it they're so defensive that they vote for the tiny little doll sorry i just gave myself chills he gets into power does massive tax cuts to the rich increases oil production, shooting Canada past its IPCC climate targets, deregulates, privatizes, and sells out the next generation. What do you think? I'll be honest with you, I have not been this terrified in a pitch meeting since I signed Stephen King on his first novel. It's good. I don't even know if it's moral to hire you to write this book because it might be too scary for the public. Yeah, it's pretty scary. Pretty scary idea from my twisted mind. Well, dark and twisted is what we do here. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. And that scary book was so scary that everyone on the planet who read the book, billions of people, peed their pants at the exact same time. The city streets were flowing with pee. And of course, where does pee flow? Into the ocean. And when there's that much pee, you get a rise in sea levels. Coastal cities were destroyed. Migration crises intensified. The landscape of the planet was forever changed. The end. Gerald Butts Sketch 3. Okay, so like the basic premise of the joke is that it's outside of work hours and Gerald Butts gets a phone call from Justin Trudeau. Justin, Justin, you can't call me. I'm watching Trailer Park Boys. You know I'm watching Trailer Park Boys right now. No, Justin, I can't tell you what to say right now. I only tell you what to say at political events. Remember, for political events. If the waitress wants to know what food you want, just look at the menu and pick something. You know what kind of food you eat, okay? This isn't a call Gerald moment. We talked about this. When it is or isn't call Gerald, remember? Do you remember that, Justin? That's important. I'm hanging up, Justin. I'm hanging up. I'm going to do it. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly brought to you by 101 Gerald Butts Jokes. Knock, knock. Who's there? Gerald. Gerald who? Gerald Butts, who is guilty of ethics violations and specifically political interference in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion. <laughs> What's black and white and red all over? I don't know. A newspaper filled with stories about political interference in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion and ethics violations committed by Gerald Butts. <laughs> Why did Gerald Butts cross the road? I don't know. Why did he cross the road? To commit ethics violations. <laughs> oh. 101 Gerald Butts Jokes, today's sponsor of Seriously Wrong.
Another thing that we wanted to talk about is that new poll around the Green New Deal in Canada. Yeah. Just like there's some interesting results about Canadian public opinion on the climate emergency. It's like 85% of Canadians either say that we're in a climate emergency or we're in a climate near emergency. There'll be an emergency in the next five years. Really, really encouraging polling for eco-socialists because it shows actually a lot of Canadians have our back on this sort of stuff. We need a radical sort of climate transition that is going to move us away from climate apocalypse. And 85% of Canadian voters agree that either we're in the crisis or we're about to be in crisis. Yeah, like we kind of started this conversation talking about these false certainties of the horse race analysis. Like Nanos poll tracking shows a green surge. And then for the next four months, it's like green surge, green surge. And then you look at the poll tracking and the greens have been like 10% since the spring, 10, 11, 12%. Sometimes they go up a bit or like liberal collapse or conservative. And then, you know, they're kind of tracking together. And in fact, if you look, the interesting numbers in the Nanos opinion tracking is the percentage of people who are considering voting for any given party. And if you look at the Greens, the NDP, they're both at 33% of people might would be willing to, under the right circumstances, vote NDP. The Conservatives and Liberals are barely ahead of that, like 42. I think the Liberals might be 45. So all four of the major parties in English Canada are between 33% and 45% of people considering them as a possibility. To me, that suggests like there's a huge range of possibilities in the outcome. And the poll numbers for the given parties shouldn't get all the attention. They should have a horse race of issues. It's like wealth tax is uh, surging. They finally did a survey about it. 60% of Canadians want a wealth tax and no one's even talked about it yet. And then the next headline, the next uh, pundit discussion would be Green New Deal is leading the election. 72% of Canadians want a Green New Deal because this is the number that um, some polling was done by Seth Klein, who's a, a researcher, was the former director of the CCPA. He's writing a book on climate change. So he sort of commissioned some of his own polling and found that 72% of Canadians supported a Green New Deal. Again, like not an issue people have they barely started to campaign on. The NDPs has a version of it. The Greens talk about it. That's it. But 72% of people like it. But then if you break down the polling that was commissioned, only 14% of Canadians surveyed really knew what it was. So, But once you tell them what it is, they're like, holy shit, I like that. Yeah, high-speed rail, like more public transit, shift to renewables, end to fossil fuel subsidies. 72% of Canadians want that, but only 14% of Canadians have heard that. Like That's the polling to me that we should be talking about and the media should be talking about. Because for that gap between 72% and 14%, those are people you can convince to vote for your platform. If you can just talk to the people who haven't heard about the Green New Deal yet... Seven out of 10 of them are going to be potential voters. Yeah, that gets really to like the heart of what I hate about this personality politics stuff being so front and center of like, which leader's likable? It's like, who gives a fuck which leader's likable? Or who's the most prime ministerial? Who's your top choice for prime minister? I mean, I don't know, whoever the party whose local representatives I vote for selects as their first minister among equals, because we live in a parliamentary system, not a presidential system. It doesn't actually fucking matter if I support Andrew Scheer, Elizabeth May, Jagmeet Singh, or, or Justin Trudeau, which party and which platform do I support? And I bet you if you look at the data, no, I don't have the data in front of me, but I would put a little bit of money on this. I doubt that Trudeau was leading in prime ministerial leading up to 2015, and I doubt that Stephen Harper was leading in prime ministerial in his last re-election campaign you know like this shit's totally irrelevant 
to what voters care about and to like how the system works. So like, yeah, all this horse race polling stuff is bullshit and people get so hung up on it where they're like, oh, this poll here shows that the NDP's down. It's proof that it's like, just no, it's just like, look at the historical data. Oh, if the NDP is still in third place, Jagmeet's got to go as leader. And it's like, have you ever heard of fucking Tommy Douglas? He was in third and fourth place his entire career. He was voted the greatest Canadian of all time. Like, so I mean, he was history. premier, but in federal politics, fair enough, fair enough. And he got rolled by Trudeau mania in 1968 when he would have made a hell of a prime minister too. And the other thing about Tommy Douglas, just looping back to Jagmeet Singh not being given his due, and partly there's implicit or explicit racism and things at play, you literally see these disgruntled NDPers who prefer Tom Mulcair say, I just don't think Canadians want religiosity or, or the left can't have someone who wears a religious symbol as its leader or a religious person as leader. It's like Tommy Douglas literally came from the pulpit in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Like he was a preacher coming out of the Protestant gospel liberation theology on the prairies. Like that was the base of the agrarian socialism that we all romanticize. And Jagmeet Singh, he doesn't talk about it because of this racism. And I think that we're, we're talking about it, but he is someone who came to sort of social justice understanding in many ways through a faith tradition, which has a strong like egalitarian strand from the very beginning in, in Sikhism. So yeah, we got sidetracked from the Green New Deal, but uh, that's another another important theme. Is there anything else you want to cover from like this polling and stuff? Well, also that people agree that we're in a climate emergency. I mean, you just go down the list of like, what is a Green New Deal? It's basically as many good things as you want under this umbrella of making rich people pay more phasing out fossil fuel subsidies and then investing all that money you save or generate into good stuff that we need anyway. Tax the rich, use the money to... But we haven't talked about housing because that's the other thing we need to generate revenue to actually build public housing. And I think that's the other clear distinction between the Liberals' record in power and what we need in terms of progressive politics is that the Liberals say they have a national housing strategy, but they've hardly delivered any of the money. It's all... It's all back-end loaded, like, well, you have to re-elect us three times before you'll get these units of housing. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, people are, like, setting up Airbnbs and podcast studios in their living room. <laughs> so, like, we need the housing yesterday. The liberals have not delivered, and the money they have delivered is often just in the form of loans to private developers who don't actually build affordable housing anyway. So it's just subsidizing this broken capitalist model of housing. And the NDP calls for 500,000 units over the next 10 years of affordable housing, truly affordable housing, including co-ops and public housing, social housing. Again, that's like a good start. It's like the right direction. And it's totally different than the sort of private market model that the liberals have followed. And of course, if you poll people on, would you like to tax rich people to build housing? As we found municipally, that's a wildly successful pitch. Well, I think it's about time for the moment of the show where we give our three quick wrong boy TM registered R circle copyright wrong boys critiques of the NDP platform. What do you say? Yeah, we've been working hard, toiling away in the critique minds, creating top shelf critiques of NDP 2019 platform pieces, and we're excited to share them with everyone. The first of which, and I gotta say, you know, this is a good policy, don't get me wrong. They promised to end homelessness within 10 years with a particular focus on veteran homelessness. Now, it's totally understandable that veteran homelessness is of particular concerns to voters outside of the NDP base. I get why they 
highlight that. Yeah. But 10 years, that's way too slow. It's something you can't be held accountable to. Like, I mean, maybe they'll still be in power in 10 years, but... If you only re-elected me, would it, we would have ended homelessness. It's like, no, the way that you're going to generate a lot of passion behind you is by making sure that the time that you have in power, no matter how short, is meaningful. Not through these long games playing, like, come yeah, on. Just do it. Just end homelessness in four, three years. Why not? A year and a half. I think a year is like cutting a little bit tight. I want to be fair. A year and a half. Two years, you still got to pass. But Build the buildings, staff the buildings, and help the people move into the buildings. That's the important plan here. And that should obviously be part of an expansion of the existing plan to build 500,000 units of non-market housing. It needs to be expanded by a lot, multiplied. Critique number two, foreign policy. It is important that the NDP has a very principled foreign policy. One great way that you can show that you read Noam Chomsky like us. Very important in a political candidate. Please say military industrial complex. Talk about it. Talk about how war is a racket. Talk about how the military industrial complex motivates countries to war that's against the interests of human beings for profit ties into your key messages of environmentalism and class. Yeah, I like Mike Gravel and Marianne Williamson in the United States platform, which I have followed quite a bit, to create a Department of Peace in their nation. So maybe we could create a Department of Peace in our nation. And obviously Canada shouldn't plus one to any weird American power games. Like, at the very least, you got to call that stuff out. Critique number three. Yeah, this is a big one. So we referenced Mélenchon and France's left populist party earlier in the episode, and part of Mélenchon's platform that always caught my imagination that the Jagmeet Singh NDP could take a page from is his proposal for an enormous undersea submarine station, similar to the International Space Station, except for the bottom of the ocean. I just think that's really cool. Yeah, I hear things sometimes about how we haven't explored a lot of like the bottom of the ocean, and it seems like we should. It seems important to me. I just think we got to know what's down there, number one. And number two, if we want to create an ecological society, we really got to crack the nut on the waste equals food scenario, meaning that we want all of our outputs to be inputs into the ecology that makes sense, which of course means creating trash that you can throw in the ocean. So an underwater sea station that measures the ocean to figure out how that's possible would be uh, something I would vote for someone for. But again, I understand if it doesn't go in the platform. Or make it the centerpiece of the platform. Make the party's slogan, we got to find out what's down there. Surprise election issue. Everyone thinks that the ballot question this election is climate change. Well, guess what? The ballot question this election is who's going to build that enormous motherfucking sea station. Maybe we'll discover something down there to fix climate change. We find a big red button that says fix climate change down at the bottom of the ocean. All you need to do is build a sea station. So that's our third critique. That's our most important critique that that's missing. There's other stuff, but it's election season, so we're just going to wait to organize after the election. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, thanks for doing this critique moment with me. Well, well, thank you for sharing this critique moment with me. Well, you're welcome. And thank you to the audience for patiently listening as we go through our critiques, which can sometimes be tiresome during an election season. They have been so patient. I've just noticed that, how patient they are. Gerald Butt Sketch 4.
So we're a hyperdimensional political being which represents the anthropomorphized embodiment of cynical capitalist realism walks into the puppet store and he says puppet keeper my Gerald Butts puppet is broken and the puppet keeper says well, what's, what's wrong with the Gerald Butts puppet? What's going on? And he says, I keep on trying to get this Gerald Butts puppet to insist that everything necessary is impossible, betray the pledge to electoral reform, and commit ethics violations, but he won't do it. What? He won't do it? What, what does he do instead? Instead, all he'll keep doing is advocating for an enormous undersea research station, saying that we must know what's down there. Wait, we must know what's down there. What does that have to do with any... I don't know what it has to do with anything. Usually he's such a faithful little puppet, but in this case, he's thought his own way. He's broken from the mold, and he started to advocate for what's really needed. Oh, that is one defective puppet, sir. Well, let me just give you your money back. It's like, no, I don't want my money back. I want to understand this phenomenon, truly. Oh, sorry, sir, we can't help you understand phenomenon here. We can only sell puppets or take them back. He's like, well, in that case, I'll then take it back. If those are my only two options, then I'll have the money, please. It's like, okay, well, here you go, sir. And they took the broken Gerald Butts puppet and they put it in storage. The end. I think there, there you have it, folks. I mean, in terms of what we can do over the next seven, eight weeks for this election, I think there's some great candidates to plug into. For example, Sven Robinson, the only federal candidate I know of who has said the market has failed when it comes to housing, an important sentiment. He literally interrupted and heckled Ronald Reagan when Ronald Reagan came to speak to the Canadian Parliament. A sitting MP, Sven Robinson, called out Ronald Reagan, the most powerful world leader at the time, in the midst of the Cold War. The first outburst from the NDP benches came when President Reagan talked about the American Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars. SDI supports and advances the objectives of arms control, offering a more stable in Nicaragua. We see such a campaign on our own shores. Threatening. Is there an echo in here? Later, the most outspoken heckler, Sven Robinson, defended his actions. It is entirely appropriate that uh, members of Parliament uh, should be free to voice our concerns uh, uh, when uh, we have the President of the United States uh, standing in Parliament defending Star Wars, defending the funding of murderous contracts. Uh, uh, the president should know that there are Canadians that won't accept that. But Liberal leader John Turner called the heckling discourteous. Whether or not one agrees with every word the president uttered, he is the guest of the House of Commons, the Parliament of Canada. Uh, I was uh, embarrassed as a member to uh, have to undergo that. He insulted the president of the United States, and I frankly think Sven Robinson should be uh, the one apologizing for his remarks today. Remember when Trudeau did that kind of like strong handshake and like resisted Trump trying to like, you know? Yeah, it's like the Canadian Pelosi clap. Alpha handshake battle or something. And people were just like, there was this this rapturous joy over this (laughs) handshake. Like Sven Robinson will do the equivalent of that handshake with real politics on like everything from the Saudi arms deal to that Trans Mountain Pipeline, which they're probably going to start building during the election campaign. Mm. That's in Sven's writing. Which is in Sven's writing. And we made this reference to Clackwatt's 
sound. And again, for listeners not as bloody old as me, may not know that that was sort of the big flashpoint in the battle to save old growth temperate rainforest here on the west coast of Vancouver Island. Some of just the most beautiful untouched forest and and giant ancient trees. So it was a huge flashpoint between the forestry industry that just wanted to clear cut and the sort of emerging environmental movement and indigenous rights movement, because again, this logging was being done without and was not benefiting the local indigenous nations. So uh, just to reiterate, like this member of parliament from an opposition party was willing to go, you know, lock arms and block these giant logging trucks and get arrested and do time in jail And he did that while there was a BC NDP government in power. So it wasn't just that he had to go to jail. He had to face down all of his friends and allies and all of his fellow party members in BC who were worried about issues with the BC government. So he's willing to be very independent-minded when there are contradictions in his own party in an extreme way, which is important because we need politicians who can break through all the bullshit and do the right thing. And he needs to be the member of parliament if they try to build that damn pipeline through Burnaby Mountain. Like it just, it has to be him. Absolutely. And actually on that note, folks, I've got some sad news about the podcast, but great news about the future of Canada, which is that our show, we were planning to wrap up at episode 200, but unfortunately campaign season is so underway and a political campaign, it takes a lot of time. It's kind of a seven days a week thing. So after the next episode, after this one, after episode 199, we're going to be taking a break. We've got a great episode 200. What was going to be the season finale is going to have to be delayed until November, but it's going to be a hell of a season premiere because we're not going to rush it out. I believe the November show, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but it's going to be the story of the quixotic left-wing interjection in the Canadian federal election that turned the tide and led to electoral reform, the stopping of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And we'll also probably have to talk about UK politics, because hopefully by November, Jeremy Corbyn will be in 10 Downing Street as Prime Minister. Some people have accused me of being optimistic, by the way. Uh, (laughs) But, but, you know, things are possible. History is still to be written by those who show up and fight. Yeah, and if we're going to take that left turn as a country, and I think that we should, it's going to involve taking sort of you know, pragmatic local steps, looking to who is your local candidate, someone that you can help get behind, saber rattle for, and push for that wealth tax. And you know, go and talk to them and tell them you want more. Tell them you want more than a wealth tax. Tell them what you need. Just be straight up about what your politics are. They need to hear these voices. We need to be part of the process. Whatever the common sense of the people participating in these campaigns are can become the common sense of the party in the future. And if there's a minority government situation with the NDP balance of power, we want to make sure the right ones are in. Also, on that note, if you're Canadian, there is generous tax receipts for donations to Canadian federal parties. If you give a $400 donation, you get $300 back on your taxes. I do this pitch all the time in fundraising and working in campaigns, so I'm just going to directly out to you Canadian people. If you go to svenrobinson.com slash donate, you can make a donation that helps make sure that Sven's going to be in Parliament to heckle the next Reagan. If you've got money to give, thank you. Please do. The last thing I was going to say to tell those politicians and those people running for office whose campaigns you go and volunteer on, tell them in all seriousness, you will occupy their offices and kick them out of office if they don't do exactly what we need. Like, we actually need to take this approach. We're not just saying, like, yeah, you should be involved in the next six weeks because this is a big flashpoint. But we actually need an approach to electoral politics where we don't let the politicians and our elected people off the hook. We don't just 
go back to not paying attention, we actually hold them to account in a very dynamic and I think direct action way. Like I just had to throw that, you know, I didn't want to sound too just electoralist. To me, it's like it's one sort of moment where we all focus on one thing as part of building a larger movement for that eco-socialist or whatever term you use to describe the transition we really we have to make the whatever movement or system it's going to be that gets those billionaires out of being billionaires and out of power i really appreciate coming on this podcast and i appreciate the work that that you guys do aaron and sean because you guys were kind of late comers to twitter and didn't always focus on like the canadian politics on your show i was kind of a late comer to your show and came across it after i met you sean but it's like it's one of those few podcasts that we have in canada as a long-standing leftist, is like just to listen to it is like this enormous release or uh, release. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're aiming for that. I've said too much. I've said too much. <laughs> relief. I meant relief. It's like you know, a relief sort of washes over you. Like your show, Alberta Advantage, some of these other progressive podcasts across the country that are just emerging. It's like people are like saying out loud the stuff that the left has been sort of cowering away or saying amongst themselves in these little tiny meetings of little tiny groups and the thing is they're not just like saying it on these podcasts they're actually taking it out into the world and and taking these ideas out there because they're actually they're they're popular so i don't know that was my way of thanking you guys for your work because it's a number of years you've been doing this this show and i know that independent media projects take a lot of free labor and undercompensated labor so it's it's really important if only you guys got a tax receipt eh that big media bailout is all going to post media yeah, it it's not to going to podcasts like this. Not the Damn. mom and pop fucking uh, <laughs> living room podcasts <laughs> that are really moving the Overton window in this country. It's going to the big ones. Well, you know, thanks a lot Thank for saying guys. so. Yeah. And yeah, and I likewise appreciate the work that you've done with Ricochet and other projects to help make independent Canadian leftist content. So definitely, Derek, you're on Twitter. It's Derek O'Keefe is the the name. Yeah, just, just Derek O'Keefe. Check out ricochet.media, great independent leftist content, and check us out on Patreon. For $6 a month, you get access to the whole archive of bonus episodes, I mean, episodes a day early as they're released, as well as access to this Discord secret Facebook group. And if you give us $20 a month, we'll shout out something you want on the show, because when you give us $20 a month, that's a lot more money. And <laughs> we really that's sort of the point of the Patreon thing. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with our pre season finale but the actual season finale is postponed seriously seriously you guys are stupid seriously seriously wrong 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 seriously are they wrong i think they're wrong 100 percent sometimes they're wrong sometimes they're wrong seriously they're always wrong that is absolute wrong seriously it's so wrong wrong very nice words but happens to be wrong 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 Next time on Seriously Wrong, after being physically beaten by Jagmeet Singh, Chip Wilson's Redemption. Uh, thank you for bringing all the television cameras, media here to my hospital room. I'm still in recovery from the no-holds-barred MMA match where I was defeated by Jagmeet Singh, and I have something I want to announce. For a long time, I thought that socialists were physically weak, I realize now that a lot of my conceptions about socialism, and more specifically eco-socialism, have been wrong. A lot of socialists are actually very physically strong and can kick my ass. There's no doubt in my mind that Jagmeet Singh totally kicked my ass and could again anytime, any place. And so I've been doing some reflecting uh, here in the hospital room, reading Murray Bookchin, Marx and Engels. I've been reading uh, Emma Goldman. I've been reading 
Perpotkin, Angela Davis, Cornell West, Zizek, Chomsky, and I just loved Inventing the Future by Cernicek and Williams. And I've decided to put all of my wealth, all of my many, many billions, into starting the Chip Wilson Institute for Eco-Socialism. Now this is a project we're going to finance to hire thousands and thousands eco-socialists across Canada, begin the process of developing the policy that's needed to survive the upcoming climate crisis, as well as paying for regional community organizing with dedicated staff from coast to coast. I've made this decision. I've come to this decision. Steve, my yacht dealer, is going to be really upset to hear this, but sorry, Steve, there's things that are more important than me buying new yachts from you all the time, which has been practice. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, but I do need to rest because I have been badly beaten and I'm still healing. Why don't we just take those billionaires' money away? Yes, and spend it on shit for which millionaires say we can't afford to pay. We could just start by taking those billionaires' money away. You know, there's like eight guys who own more than half of the whole human race. It's true. And I'd like to sit down with you and chat about just what that says. I'd like to. But I can't be bothered. I'd rather be working with people who are ready today, like Gene, ready to get to work, taking those billionaires' money away, and spend it on health care, child care, trans care, elder care, mental care, dental care, shelter, you get the picture. Yes, we see. Okay, here's the problem. Some say we can't do it on account of the economy. That's what they say. Cause rich people own more of it and it scares investment, you see. Boo! But we've been doing it their way for a long time now. How's that working out? Okay? No? Then let's innovate by taking those billionaires' money away. Okay, let's go up a tax bracket here. Some say we can't do it. Cause the billionaires keep it all hid Like in Panama and stuff, you know? But the government could find it If they wanted to What if they did? What if? So if you say it can't be done 
I'm done with you, chum. Go take a billion holidays in the sun with your friend, the Aga Khan, or Richard Branson, or that schmuck from Amazon. While the rest of us take those billionaires' money away. Yes, we're gonna take those billionaires' money away. And spend it on shit for which millionaires say we can't afford to pay. We'll just start by taking those billionaires' money.